Hello and welcome to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. On this episode, I'm going to be speaking to return guest Tom Holland about his latest book, Pax, War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age. Let's raise our champagne Cheers. on the house. We are at Noble Rot. I'm delighted to be joined again by former guest on the Booking Club, Tom Holland, award-winning historian, best-selling author, and co-host of the Titanic, The Rest is History podcast. It's been a year and a pandemic, Tom. How is <laughs> it has. It has. How are you doing? Tell Very us. well. Yeah, what Very have you well. been up to of late? Uh, I see you've been in the States. Well, uh, so I, as you said, um, since we last met, I too have become a podcaster. I guess I started doing it essentially as a way of promoting my books, because that had always been my primary role. That's how I always saw myself. That was the, very much the focus of attention. And now it's uh, grown sufficiently that I would see it as um, a kind of parallel career. Um, which basically means having two jobs, which is quite stressful. <laughs> so since you ask, do you ever worry that you're going to run out of history? <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, obviously, writing a book is a massive investment in a particular period. And so I've always written books about periods that I'm particularly interested in, particularly knowledgeable about. But what doing the rest is history has confirmed for me is that there is no period, there is no aspect of history that isn't fascinating. Because... Um, history is the illustration of the fact that there are infinite ways to be human. So how can that not be interesting? And to do these kind of bite-sized episodes is kind of perfect. It's a, a, a constant process of self-education, which is wonderful. And anything that you vaguely... Sus you know, the faintest scent of interest, you can go following it. And often you'll fi I, I find that things that I was actively hostile to turn out to be fascinating so the classic example of that would yeah. be we try to cover a, a, as broad a range of subjects and periods and topics as possible and it was uh, i was very aware that we hadn't really done anything on napoleonic wars we'd done one episode on napoleon in egypt because i'd made a film that had touched on that theme so i had kind of notes ready to hand for that the, the anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar was coming up and I thought well, we should just do the Battle of Trafalgar I mean how hard can it be I, I kind of vaguely knew the story everybody vaguely knows the story but I was pretty hostile to the whole theme of the Royal Navy in the early 19th century because I tried to read Patrick O'Brien's novels and had given up on the first novel just defeated by the quantity of rope and masts and sails and yes. mizzens and whatever. I still yes. don't really know what a mizzen is. Yes, knots. And so I thought, well, I'm, we should do it. It's kind of duty. I'm not really going to find this interesting. Anyway, I was blown away. It was so thrilling. It was possibly the, the most exciting topic of everything we've done on the rest of history for me to research. I found it eye-opening because it turned out as I should have known, but it was kind of dizzying to, to kind of contemplate this. The reality of this, that the result of Trafalgar depends on the personal genius of, of Nelson, but it also depends on um, decades of the honing of naval tactics. And 
you know, a century and more are essentially of industrialization. And there's this wonderful phrase in um, N.A.M. Rogers, one of his great books on, on the develop- history of the Royal Navy, that n- the Royal Naval Dockyards and Napoleonic Wars were islands of the 19th century in an 18th century sea. And to make sense of the Battle of Trafalgar, you also have to make sense of the Industrial Revolution, the, the, the great revolution in health that will spill out from the, the, the ships of the Royal Navy into the 19th century. The sense that to be on a, a Royal Navy vessel in the age of Nelson is probably to be healthier than anyone else on the face of the planet. Right. You know, you're not wow. getting off your ship. Yeah. Maybe for two or three years at a time. Mm-hmm. The medical knowledge aimed at keeping the men on board these ships alive and immune to disease is better than anywhere else in the world. And understanding of how you keep people healthy is therefore more advanced than than anywhere else. And the lessons that's learned from that will have a huge impact on public health over the course of the 19th century. So all of this was unbelievably fascinating. Right, right. And when you when you then you you look at these kind of the deep background to trafalgar and then you you pull back and you look at the actual battle itself god it's a fa- it's a brilliant story i mean i kind of ended up describing nelson as um a christian achilles this simultaneous sense of of moral certitude combined with a lethal aptitude for killing and it is compl- i mean it is defy anyone not to find it heroic christian achilles is there a more tom holland phrase than that <laughs> yeah maybe let's talk about noble rot let's talk about why we're here this time we were in andrew edmonds last time in soho r.i.p um, and um has since died andrew edmonds indeed although the restaurant carries the restaurant on. carries on yeah so tell us a little bit about why you've chosen noble rot though, though we don't say it too loud your second favorite restaurant <laughs> yes so i um one of the things that I've always been frustrated about myself is that I am not good at picking up on wonderful places to go. Um, so that was true when I was young, that I would have to basically be told which clubs to go to or, you know, which of the cutting edge films or where the, the best places for breakfast were. I just seem to lack the knack for finding them myself. And one of the great joys of parenthood is that I have two daughters who are brilliant at that. So I can now kind of piggyback on them. But in your defence, it was before the internet, right? No, no, even through, you know, so, so I'm talking now about a period just before the pandemic. Oh, um, I see. So, uh, but I have friends who are, who are brilliant at it as well. Yeah, yeah. And I meet up maybe once every, every six months with Filippo Clare, who is um, Monsieur Football for covers the, the premiership for French media, but is also a brilliant musician, uh, philosopher, bon viveur, knowledgeable about almost everything. And Jonathan Coe, the, the great novelist, um, and Julia Jordan, who is brilliant uh, scholar of modern contemporary uh, English literature. And we meet up once every six months, and we each take it in turn to choose a restaurant. And Philippe chose this. This particular one? He chose or? this particular okay. restaurant. Yeah. And I just had a wonderful, wonderful afternoon. The, the food and drink was perfect. I mean, chosen by Philippe because he obviously is brilliant at that kind of thing <laughs> in a way that I never would be. But I kind of, you know, profited from his expertise. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful afternoon. And um, so 
I love this partly, I think, because it's inherently very good, but also because it's kind of illumined by the, 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 the kind of the happy memory of that afternoon. Not to leave the book too long in this conversation, we might as well get started on Pax, War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age. It's worth noting that on the wreath on the cover here, against the dark purple background, you may miss that in fact it is stained and dripping yeah, it's with a very blood. very handsome cover. But the blood dripping from the wreath is essential to the point you're trying to make, isn't it? That peace is really won through extreme and sustained violence. I mean, you could perhaps more legitimately describe Pax... Uh, translated as pacification. Uh, so peace for the Romans is an active word. Um, we have a much more, I think, passive derived from 2,000 years of Christianity. But for the Romans, Pax is, is an aggressive, martial quality. And the Pax Romana is upheld at the point of a sword. So the peace is genuine. I mean, it is an astonishing geopolitical achievement that the whole of the Mediterranean because it's under the rule of a, a unitary power for the only time in history. Therefore, the shipping lanes are under the control of this unitary power and all the seaboards are. And so therefore, it, the Mediterranean serves as a kind of a single market. It's not your first book on the Roman Empire. And I think with each one, you've wanted to explore and test certain propositions. The propositions in this book that you wanted to test... What were they? Um, I, well, I suppose I wanted to know how much of an achievement was the peace. And I think it was a considerable achievement. I mean, nothing really like it before or since has existed in Europe. But I also wanted to um, test the proposition that this peace came with costs, as every peace does. I mean, our own peace does. Um, people have to suffer that we can sit here and enjoy you know the food that we have um but i think that was even that that was even more the case in the roman period and i think the romans felt utterly unapologetic about it so perhaps of all the propositions the proposition would be that the romans are not actually like us at all um and that often points of similarity are delusory and deceptive the last time we spoke it was of course about your last book dominion the making of the western mind Going by the coverage of this book, what I suspect a lot of people maybe have misunderstood in their haste to try and draw a link between that book and this book is that this book is there to hold up a mirror to us. Your point, the point you've been driving yeah. home since it came out is we are nothing like the Romans. But I think that um, we can learn things about ourselves by understanding that our values and perspectives are entirely contingent, um, that unless you can magic some kind of supernatural justification for your values i mean they have no objective credibility at all they we only hold them because of custom because that's the world that we've been born into and in the roman world by our lights they were incredibly brutal and often incredibly cruel but they had their own values and that the fascination of studying i think the pre-christian classical past is the opportunity to get to grips with a wholly different way of understanding what it is to be human. Let's start from the beginning of this story, 68 AD, the suicide of Nero, because it's after that that we come to the opening of this yeah. narrative, so, the year of the four emperors. So the death of Nero is a key crisis point in the history of Rome, because Nero is the last living descendant of Augustus, and Augustus is 
the supreme genius, not I think not just of Roman history, but probably of Western history, full stop. He is the man who has redeemed the 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 collapsing republic and reconstituted it and constructed his own autocracy like a kind of cuckoo in the nest right and this autocracy stabilizes an imperial system that had been on the point of of collapse and even romans who resent their subordination to an autocrat and feel that it is a humiliation nevertheless recognize that um, there is really no alternative to the autocracy that Augustus has enshrined. And this is what gives Augustus his divine status. So the name Augustus literally means someone who is midway between earth and heaven, someone who's midway between the mortal and the divine. And when he dies, Augustus ascends to heaven to sit at the right hand of his, his divine father, Julius Caesar. So he is a, a, a colossal figure and literally seen as divine. And so anyone who's descended from him has his blood in his veins. And this is what licenses his heirs to rule the, the empire. And this is why Nero um, is accepted by Rome and by the, the, the world that, that Rome rules as Caesar. But when Nero dies, then there's the question, well, what now? We don't have any heirs of Augustus. So... There are a tiny minority who think it might, you know, we should reintroduce, we should restore the Republic, but that's absolute no-go. I mean, it's dead by this point. And so as Tacitus famously puts it, a, a secret of empire is revealed that actually you don't need to be in Rome to become emperor because if you're out in the provinces and you have an army, that's actually the best um, way of becoming an emperor is to lead that army on Rome. And so um, four men in succession in the year AD 69, the year of the four emperors, do this. Um, Galba, who leads an army from Spain, and Galba is a very retro guy. He's, he's from an aristocratic family that is um, of impeccable Republican lineage. He's a very... He's a man who upholds traditional Roman values. Um, he's austere, he's, he's ascetic. Um, he is a great enthusiast for the kind of brutal, honorable punishments with which Roman discipline used to be upheld and which he feels needs to be restored. But the Roman people don't like this. And so fairly quickly, he's removed. The very first guy to have a pop of the four emperors was not a young upstart from the no, provinces. No, the opposite. I mean, he's very old. Okay. He's very crabbed. He's the opposite to Nero. And Galba thinks that his kind of ancestral rectitude is exactly what a people who've been spoiled by the rule of Nero require, but the people don't agree. Right. <laughs> so he's right. incredibly unpopular. So he goes very rapidly. And then there's Otto. Who is a friend of Nero's. In fact, they had shared um, the same wife. And Nero had decided he wanted exclusive dibs on this woman, Papaya Sabina. And so this is why Otho ends up exiled in, in um, Iberia. Oh, right. Doesn't even get started. No. So um, Otho accompanies Galba and the march on, on um, Rome and is actually the person who ends up um, leading the assassination of Galba. And Otho is in many ways a kind of the poor man's Nero. He, he, he wears a toupee. He uh, depilates himself. I didn't know they had two pays back then. Mm. But Otho will actually go on to prove himself to be much more of a, an antique Roman even than Galba had done, and in, in a noble sense, because 
even as Otho is laying claim to the rule of the world, up on, on the, the northern frontier along the, the Rhine, which is the greatest concentration of manpower in the whole empire, the legions are restless and they want to create their own emperor and they fix on a, a man who's very, very fond of pies. Again, a man of aristocratic background called Vitellius. Vitellius, that's right. Kind of character from The Sopranos. He One does of the kind look of like Tony yeah, And by the way, Tom, we are going to be talking about... zone on legs, as The Sopranos would say. <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to be talking about The Sopranos here too. Um, I watched it for the first time during lockdown. Right. You started watching it. Well, I watched it for the second, second time. time. But, but, but if you think of one of those very large men yeah, in yeah. Tony Soprano's gang with the kind of the shirt hanging out and the belly protruding, yeah. that's basically what Vitellius looked like. Receding, not in need of a toupee. Uh, yeah, he's not, he's not worried about that. He's kind of balding, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, so his army's come down. Otho, he, he marches north. His army is defeated. Otho could have carried on the fight, but he decides that civil war is the worst fate that can be inflicted on a people. And therefore, rather than continue the fight, he's going to commit suicide. So he dies very nobly. And Vitellius then proceeds southwards to Rome and installs himself in the capital. But Vitellius had never wanted to be emperor. He recognized that he was unsuited to, um, to ruling the world. Why did he see himself as unsuited? He was aware of his own liabilities. He knew that he was indecisive, uh, lazy, lacked um, the kind of the, the ruthless sense of ambition that was required, I think, to, to govern the world. And he was really dragged along by his own armies. You know, he had the choice of letting them make him emperor or they would kill him. Fair play to him. I mean, at least yeah, he knew his weaknesses. He so gluttonous and slothful. <laughs> yeah, he did. And he, he wasn't wrong. But unfortunately for him, in the East, there is the fourth candidate, the fourth man who has, makes a pitch at being emperor. And he's a very able man. And this is a guy called Vespasian, who's from very humble background, kind of peasant stock from beyond Rome. Um, it was said of him that, that he had a face that looked like a man straining to have a shit. But it's to Vespasian's credit that he found that quite funny. Um, he had quite a... Uh, a sense of humour. You know, he made jokes that, that can, are still capable of kind of raising a smile to this day. Okay. Is there one that you know from well, translation? Well, the famous one is... That, I mean, you know, spoiler alert, he goes on to become emperor. Right. He succeeds in toppling Vitellius um, and rules for a decade. And then as he falls ill and the onset of illness, he says, goodness, I think I'm becoming a god. In other words, he knows that he's going to be deified. It's quite funny. I mean, you're kind of smiling at I that am one. Smiling. Yeah, you're kind of smiling. But what, what, why Vespasian is able to make himself emperor is that in the final years of Nero's rule, a rebellion has broken out in Judea, and Vespasian is appointed to go and crush it, which he's pretty much done by the time Nero dies. All, all that really remains is Jerusalem. So Vespasian pauses. The, you know, he doesn't go on to attack Jerusalem. He, he, he waits, and then he decides, I've got all these troops in the east. I'm going to have a crack. And Vitellius, by this point, has shown himself to be rubbish. And so Vespasian's troops are able to seize control of Rome in the dying days of the year 69. And Vespasian sets Rome back on its foundations. And the success of Vespasian's rule and the success of the dynasty that he establishes, so he's followed by his, his elder son Titus and then by his younger son Domitian, it suggests that actually despite the fears of, of the Roman people during the, AD, the year AD 69, that the gods are terminally angry with the Romans, actually this isn't the case. This is merely surface froth. 
that the foundations of Roman rule remain secure. And the year of the four emperors comes to be seen as what it was, a, a spasm. But it does illustrate the fact that you cannot be, you know, that the, the, the basis for the rule of a Caesar is military. If you lose the support of the, the legions, then you're toast. So a Caesar has to be, in the traditional sense of the word, an imperator, an imperator from which we get our word emperor, originally meant a successful general. Um, Vespasian is, a, is able to rule for the first time really since Tiberius as someone who is an imperator in every sense of the word. He's an emperor, but he's also a successful general. And to look at Vespasian is to know that the military virtues are not entirely dead in Rome. Hello, this is Max, our waiter. Hello, Max. So uh, I think uh, I will order as a starter, please, the slip sole, followed by the roast Swelldale lamb for me for, for the main. Thank you. Could I have the buffalo mozzarella? And could I have the guinea fowl? Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you. In the last episode, you were quite intent on getting drunk, but we didn't quite get drunk. <laughs> but isn't that the whole point of this interview? No, so you, you pitched it to your followers at the time as being like, oh, we do the Invino Veritas thing, he'll get you drunk. But that was never... <laughs> not least because I always find that authors, when they do get a bit drunk, they think, oh, I'm going to say something stupid. So you were, you were quite brave to say, yeah, let's do it. I'm fine. Yeah. I'm absolutely fine. <laughs> so after the year of the four emperors, this tumultuous period, which again, if I were to be simplistic i would try to compare it to 2022 and when the uk right. had several yes. prime ministers but i'm not yeah. going to do that yeah uh, and i can tell as you nod that you're pleased i'm not going to do that <laughs> well, well i mean the thing question is that... worth asking you is does it tire you as a historian to constantly have people try to squeeze the zeitgeist out of everything no, you've not written? at all not at all we did a live show of the podcast um maybe a year ago and we i did a pretty shameless kind of link of the year of the four emperors to uh, the convulsions of British politics in last in 2022. year. In 2022. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly that. Okay. I've asked many people, people I know, people I've interviewed about their reactions to January the 6th in America. And uh, I'm very curious to know how you reacted. So the comparisons between the United States and Rome are not, I think, entirely tendentious because the founding fathers deliberately paralleled their republic with the Roman Republic. They like to see, well, particularly Jefferson, um, like to, to see the Americans as rugged, honest farmers um, who had answered the call to defend their liberty against, you know, an evil king, had managed to expel the king and then had returned to their plows. That's the whole point for, 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 the, for, for the American political imagination that, uh, that, that Washington, you know, after his two terms of office, does return to his plow, as it were. So I think that the idea that you live in a capital, a capital with an O, a capital line hill and with a Senate and that the architecture of Washington is so classical, is so Roman, means that those parallels are very, very hard to escape. And right the way over the course of all the years that have passed by since the founding of the American Republic, the American political class and perhaps the entire American people have been shadowed by two exemplars drawn from Roman history. The first is the, the fact that the Roman Empire itself fell. And so the vision of 
the dome of the Capitol smashed and broken and toppled pillars. I mean, it's a staple of science fiction. And I think that that, that in a sense is why, say, the image of that, the, the QAnon shaman with his horns and his... His face his, paint and his, his, his look of a god, I think, yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it kind of had echoes of Victorian paintings of goths, you know, sacking Rome. Yeah. So I think lots and lots of people alluded to that. They felt that. It had a kind of resonance. But of course, the, the other, before the, the Roman Empire fell, the Roman Republic fell, the Republican system of government fell, and it was replaced by the autocracy of Augustus, as we were talking about earlier. And I think that's a more pressing fear. Um, and I think that that is, you know, there's been a massive, massive uptick in anxieties about that since um, the storming of the Capitol, but, but, but also since um, the, the kind of nightmare for the American Republic that the legal system has been massively politicized. This is very much what happened in the late Republic is that law was an extension of politics and it would be used to try and destroy your political opponents um, and clearly to an extent that is what is happening at the moment it's an invidious problem for, for anyone concerned with, with law and order in the United States that of what is legal it would be unthinkable that Trump shouldn't be prosecuted yet at the same time it's evident as well that this is being used by Trump's opponents in the hope that it will bring him down. I mean, both propositions are true, and that's the problem. And I think it's also pretty clear that were Trump to be elected, he would then use the law to bring down Biden, and possibly Clinton. I mean, who knows? You know, the famous chant at his rallies in 2016 was lock her up. So that that's a very ominous development and very very redolent of the kind of the the climactic days of the republic when the whole reason that julius caesar ends up crossing the rubicon and precipitating the civil war that ends up destroying the republic is that he has the choice of staying at the head of his legions or submitting to the law and probably seeing the end of his career and you know the echoes of that i think are are very hard to escape. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're accurate, but because of the Roman character, the Roman window dressing of the American Republic, very hard not to think of them, I think. They brought us the wine in uh, four glasses, so we're both double parked. This is looking, <laughs> very, very, well this is, this is looking very much like Vino Veritas. So I'm going to be completely sloshed by the end of this <laughs> podcast. Do you remember what you ordered there? No. <laughs> <laughs> Just do what I'm told. So tell us more about Augustus. By far and away, one of the most successful Roman leaders ever and how he managed to engineer such a sustained period of peace. I think you have some sense of the the nightmare that faced the Romans. So there is um, after Julius Caesar was assassinated um, Cicero quotes one of his colleagues in the Senate saying that if Julius Caesar couldn't solve the problems of the Roman state then who, who could? That, that it seemed that the snarl of hatreds and constitutional screw-ups was such that there was no way out of it. And as it happens, there, there are repeated cycles of civil war in the wake of Caesar's assassination. But the person who emerges from these cycles of civil war, Julius Caesar's great nephew and adoptive son, who gets awarded the name of Augustus, 
he is the genius who sorts out the problem. It requires him to effectively destroy the Republican system of government. But he does it by pretending that he's not doing that. So he, as the autocrat, pretends not to have supreme power. The, the Senate, who were, had seen themselves as the, the defenders of Rome's traditional liberties, they have to pretend to have more power than they do. And everybody involved in this kind of hall of mirrors are sufficiently aware of what the alternative is, is that they're prepared to play their roles. And gradually, Augustus lives a very, very long time. And over the course of the decades of his rule, the, 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 the fantasy blurs with the reality so that Augustus's restoration of the Republic by the end of his life, people are happy to accept that he actually has become what he always said he was. He has, in a sense, absorbed the Roman Republic into his own person. Um, and it's that that then enables the empire to endure rather than to implode, as I think without Augustus it probably would have done. So the fact that the Roman Empire endures for as long as it does, it's very, you know, there are very few people, I think, who have played an outsized role in history i think by and large most things that happen in history happen because of forces that are much greater than than individuals but i think augustus is a rare example of an individual who without whom history would be i think unfathomably different i think without him the roman empire would have disintegrated and he knows what he's doing the entire time. Can he, he strategic he, or did he get lucky? He, well, he's lucky in that he is appointed Caesar's heir. And so he gets Caesar's name and he gets Caesar's cash and his legions. So, I mean, that's a massive slice of luck. But you've got to use your luck. And, and Augustus absolutely does do that. Before we get on to talking about The Sopranos, which I've been dying to talk to you about for a while, why, why are we so fascinated with the Roman Empire, Tom? As a boy, I was obsessed by dinosaurs. And then I seamlessly moved on to an obsession with the Romans. And I, I now, looking back, see that they are pretty much of a muchness because dinosaurs and Romans are both um, fierce, glamorous, terrifying and safely extinct. If, if Augustus were a dinosaur, what would he be? Oh, I mean, he'd be a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Okay, fine, fine. <laughs> so you moved on seamlessly because you saw that these were the giants that roamed and ruled Earth. And the, and the yeah. Romans seem so like the direct corollary in a new species of that power dynamic. You know, so uh, the truth is that we are fascinated by power and glamour and by cruelty. Um, there's a reason why the Colosseum is as visited and celebrated as it is. It's not just that it's a remarkable architectural achievement. It's the fact that people fought to the death and... and secretly we're kind of thrilled by that we have inhibitions that are bred of 2000 years of christian influence but the allure of the very powerful and the very strong and the very ferocious is enormous that's why small children are obsessed by dinosaurs and it's why people are obsessed by the romans i think but i think also the obsession with the romans the fascination of rome and this is harking back to what we were talking about in the context of america is that the fascination of Roman history is akin to very good science fiction, that it's, it's simultaneously seems familiar, but is also incredibly strange and weird. And the, the fusion of the, the familiar and the strange is precisely what makes it so fascinating. Do you follow 
combat sports of any kind? Do you find no. an outlet in anything that no, is not our, at all. Our, our modern day no, gladiators? No, No, so I don't like boxing or bullfighting or anything. But I do, I do wonder. Um, suppose I went back in a time machine. Would I go and watch gladiators? Surely you would. Surely you would. So there's a there's um there's a famous account by Augustine who's describing a friend of his, but it may well be autobiographical. I mean, Augustine may be describing his own emotions as well. That this friend is contemptuous of gladiatorial combat. He wants to have nothing to do with it. Um, and then one day his friends tell him, "No, you must come and watch it." So he goes up into the arena, um, and he 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 closes his eyes. He's he's so afraid of um, what he might see. And you can hear the roars all around him. And then he opens his eyes and the spectacle of it and the excitement of it is so intense that he cannot help but feel this great surge of enthusiasm and excitement. And he's kind of hooked. And it's like a description of someone taking crack or something. Um, he's just gone. He's lost to it. And I, 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 I'm terrified that that might be my response. Because when I read about gladiatorial combat, I can get a kind of sense of the excitement of it. The, the nearest comparison to anything that I've seen is watching a very, very fast bowler bowling at a batsman who is ill-qualified to cope with it. The quality of danger is exciting. I'm only surprised to hear this because it surely is less shocking to see the thing, even just to see a boxing match, you know, than to read about some of the bloody battles that you will have read in your deep research. I think I think boxing is more Greek. Uh, I mean, it's it's people who are who are choosing to do it. In the Olympics, you go and you compete. Yeah. And no one's making you do it mm. whereas the thing about gladiators is you have no choice yes yes i see and that's why actually the difference between gladiatorial combat and cricket might seem very extreme but the thing is that cricket's is unusual among sports in that you can be a very bad batsman and have to go out and face a very good bowler and if you're a useless batsman and you're facing a very very quick bowler i mean that's quite gladiatorial and it's quite exciting. <laughs> Excellent. Here are the starters. Let's begin. So what was the secret to Augustus's success? So at the end of his career, he is voted the official title of Pater Patriae, father of his country. And he apparently weeps at this. He's so moved. He's so stirred. And in a sense, he becomes the Patronus of the entire state the role that he's doing this is publicly acknowledged and there's a kind of etymological link between pater and patronus and the word patronus obviously in english gives us patron but in italian it gives us padrone so godfather and i think there is a sense in which augustus is the most successful mafia leader of all time ah oh, mafia i see where we're going so he i think the key to his success is that on the way up he kills who he has to kill mercilessly i mean without any inhibition um he he is utterly ruthless kind of a, a teenage terrorist but once he's got power he doesn't need to do that you know cruelty is a means not an end 
and once he's got to his end he doesn't need to go around being cruel and in fact you know rather like a mafia boss playing golf you know Tony Soprano going off and playing golf or having a um, a yacht or something owning a racehorse you know you don't need to go around murdering people you've got you've, you've got your you know you've got your, your your troops to do that for you and Augustus is just brilliant at that kill when you've got to kill don't kill when you don't have to but the guy at the top is always looking over his shoulder or and it's not a spoiler alert at this point is it looking through the door of the restaurant you're dining in with your family to see who comes through paranoia is the order of the day so this it, thing about it is it is but so one of the one of the um one of the kind of the roman sayings is you can never kill your successor <laughs> um but augustus knows that the state depends on his survival and he's quite a sickly man as a young man. I mean, he's, he's often falling sick at opportune moments to get him out of battles. And there are various stages where people think he's going to die. And the, 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 you know, the offerings to the gods, the public statements of anxiety are entirely genuine because people know that after him comes the deluge. Do you know a lot about or anything much about the people who were councils to these great leaders who were the Melfis it's the, the conciliaries so Augustus does have a conciliary uh, is a man called Agrippa who was his, his boyhood friend and who became his right hand man and he also had um, a brilliant propagandist a man called Mycenas who became the patron of Virgil and Horace um, and Yet another of Augustus's talents was the ability to spot brilliantly able people and use them, have them as his agents. Um, and because without that, obviously, you can't do anything. You need people who, who believe in you and are prepared to serve you and who have enough freedom to, to do what they want to do. So, again, I imagine that that's a, 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 an absolute sine qua non for a successful mafia leader. You tweeted during the pandemic that The Sopranos was the best TV series ever written about ancient Rome. Yeah. Let's unpack <laughs> all of that. So the show is very aware of that. I mean, it, it, it stands in a line that goes back to I, Claudius. So I, Claudius was a big influence on Dynasty, but it's also a big influence on The Sopranos. And you can see this, that uh, the, the most terrifying figure in I Claudius is called Livia that's Augustus's wife um, and Tony Soprano's mother who's probably the most terrifying figure in the Sopranos is also called Livia um, th and there are moments where it's consciously alluded to so there are two particular moments one is when um, Tony is sitting on the baseball bleachers with Uncle Junior and essentially he, he cites um, Augustus as the archetype of a successful mafia boss you know he's he's telling junior don't you know don't be too brutal don't don't kind of draw attention to yourself he keeps saying to 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 junior that augustus died in his bed and he was loved by his people and junior doesn't understand what he's why he's going on about this but it's very obvious what's happening but the other famous moment is when they um there's some jewish guy who owes them money and they corner him and the Jewish guy starts talking about Masada, which was in the, the, the Judean revolt. It was the last Judean stronghold and the Romans stormed the Judean stronghold 
um, but the the the, uh, the Judeans have all committed suicide. And the Jewish guy says, you know, the Hamite of the Roman Empire. But where are the Romans now? You're looking Tony's, at them. Yeah, you're looking at them. <laughs> so I think that flags up the, the whole way through. And, and also there's the scene where, where Tony goes to Naples, the Bay of Naples, which was the great pleasure ground for the Romans. Do you think, though, that the, the series can also be read as a comment on the fall? But in the Christian sense? Yeah. I mean, you have, yeah, you have so towards I, the so, end of the so, series, you have the son of Tony Soprano, who is awakening to the, the poetry of Yeats. And Doesn't he call him Yeats? He does, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Catholic framing of it I, seems to me incredibly important, and I'd completely missed that the first time I watched it. And it's not just that the, the, the Catholic moral context of repentance, of confession and repentance which is what's happening with with dr malfi i mean it's a form of confession but there is no no absolution and so that starts to corrupt jennifer malfi as well but it's also the fact that there is a properly supernatural dimension to the whole narrative i mean the the, the sense that hell is real and that strange things happen that no one can explain. I mean, the, the, the famous one is the Russian who gets lost in the wood with, um, what's his name? Um, yeah, Paulie Walnuts. Paulie Walnuts yeah. and, um, uh, and, Chrissy. and Christopher. And they lose him and he just vanishes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he's an alien or something. Yeah, yeah. And then again, there's the thing where Paulie is, is being shadowed by cats and he feels that they're what and he has the seance where he genuinely learns something I think that the sense I mean it's very very underplayed but that's another kind of fascinating dimension you know we're only a few glasses of wine away from, from doing impressions of these characters at this point so let's, <laughs> let's try and avoid that as much as possible it's often assumed that when you pick up a book by an historian you're picking up the motherload of their knowledge on a subject it goes sometimes under the radar that the process of writing a book even for somebody who is as well versed in Roman history as yourself is a process of learning too so I sort of want to end on what it is that you learnt about the Roman Empire writing this particular book and what you hope readers of it will take away above all to disappoint you Jack in a sense this is the book I've written that I actually learnt the least and the reason for that is that it follows in the wake of Dominion, where I talk about how, say, sexuality, our understanding of sexuality is a deeply Christian one. So I knew when I came to look at the, um, the sexual dynamics in this period, I knew it was going to be shocking by our lights. So I knew that paradigms of, of domination and submission are fundamental to the Roman understanding of sexuality. So I also knew that this would kind of inform my interpretation of perhaps the most famous love affair in the period that the book covers which is that between the emperor hadrian and this greek boy antinous famously beautiful dies at a very young age perhaps having sacrificed himself perhaps having been perhaps having been murdered um very much he, he dies on the nile so kind of roman Hercule poirot would have a field day but gets deified by hadrian in the wake of his death um, and lots of statues of him survive and if they are an authentic portrayal of Antinous then he was clearly you know, an absolute stunner um, and this has been traditionally interpreted in kind of very romantic vein 
But when you're aware of the kind of the paradigms of Roman and Greek sexuality, which are kind of in tension, and both of them are utterly different to our Christian-informed understanding of sexuality, I knew that this story, this relationship of Hadrian and Antinous, would be a perfect kind of skeleton key to unlock everything about the understanding of sexuality in first the Roman and then the Greek worlds that, that, that makes it so strange. So I kind of knew that. The one thing I think that I was really excited about and surprised about was to find that it is possible to know pretty much what happened when Vesuvius erupted. And that is because we have, we have the letters of Pliny the Younger, who was writing to Tacitus, the great historian. Um, Pliny the Younger was the nephew of uh, Pliny the Elder, the great encyclopedist, who was also the admiral at the, the Roman port of Mycenaeum, which is down the Bay of Naples from Herculaneum and Pompeii, um, and who died in the eruption. So these letters are famous. People have, by and large, kind of, you know, when you read accounts of the, 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 the eruption of Vesuvius, that's what uh, that's providing the, uh, the basis for them. But there are other sources as well, of which archaeology is an obvious one. So that, you know, we're discovering more and more about the archaeology. And so that is informing our sense of exactly what happened. But above all, volcanologists have been looking at it and have been drawing on the, 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 the written sources and on the archaeology and pairing it with their understanding of how volcanoes behave. And you can put them all together and you can write an account pretty much of what happened, which is staggering. You know, this happened pretty much 2,000 years ago. So but you can give an account of the events of that terrible day that are pretty accurate. So that, was, I think, was the most interesting thing for me. And, and also what, what I found amazing is that no one else, I think, has done that. So that was very exciting. Tom, thank you very much for catching up with me again on The Booking Club. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always. Thank you. And Cheers. congratulations on the new book. Thank you for indulging my Sopranos chat as well. <laughs> I appreciate that. Always delighted to talk about Sopranos. <laughs> you may remember that when we were talking about Dominion, I was asking you how familiar you were with W.H. Uh, Auden's The Fall of Rome. Yes. It suggests that for Auden, as for so many other people, Rome has a particular significance, that it is a kind of a precursor, something that... Um, is seen to, to parallel our own world, but also to serve as a contrast to it. Um, and that's true for so many of the, the, the poets and the writers of the 20th century, you know, or even, even indeed the, the makers of TV dramas, as we were just talking about The Sopranos. Unendowed with wealth or pity, little birds with scarlet legs sitting on their speckled eggs, I, each flu-infected city. It's the flu-infected city, Joe, was often thought about during COVID. Exactly, I thought about that a lot then. You see, I don't think of flu as a particularly Roman ailment. Most people in the Roman world shat themselves to death. That's a note to end on. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>